listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I have to start my day off with at least one or two cups. I make it by hand. I usually use a pour-over. Sometimes I'll break out the Chemex on the weekend, but honestly, it doesn't matter. You could be using a Mr. Coffee. You could be using... Any cheap automatic machine, you might even have something a little fancier. But that doesn't matter. What does matter, first and foremost, is the beans. You have to start out with really high-quality beans, and that's going to pretty much guarantee, no matter how you make your coffee, that you're going to turn out with a really good cup of coffee or espresso, depending on what you like. Now, just say no to the burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee that you find in your grocery store. And I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to kovacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A coffee.com, and use my code JDP10, as in Jelly Donut Podcast 10, 10, and you get $10 off your first purchase. JDP10, and you get $10 off your first purchase at Kova Coffee. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. As soon as you know it, they roast it fresh. And it'll be right on your doorstep for you to enjoy in the morning or whenever you enjoy your coffee. So if you like the show, support Kova Coffee since they support us and you'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Lynn Alden. Lynn is the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, where she provides market research to individual investors and financial professionals with both a free newsletter and premium research platform. Her investment strategy focuses on value investing with a macro overlay. She writes for several publications and has been cited in Business Insider, Market Watch, HuffPo, and other financial media. She has a bachelor's degree in electronics engineering and a master's degree in engineering management with a focus on engineering economics and financial modeling. Enjoy my conversation with Lynn Alden. Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here, Lynn. And the first thing I like to start out with guests is going back to 2008 global financial crisis. Up until that time, we saw a lot happen along the way. Savings, SNL crisis, uh, LTCM, a lot of things along the way, but nothing was quite like 2008. So take us back to what you were doing during that time and um, how it maybe changed your view on markets. Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm probably a little younger than your average guest. So I was back then, I was an engineering intern and uh, I was working in automation, like control logic. And uh, due to the the recession we were in, uh, all the interns were um, not invited back to to continue with the company. So usually they use that as a big 
uh, way to get in new talent, but uh, because of how bad the economic situation was, they uh, didn't have any more jobs for interns. So it actually changed the direction of the career I had. I went more into aviation and eventually went into more finance. So uh, from a kind of professional standpoint, it just changed the direction. And then from a financial perspective, uh, I had been investing in the years uh, prior to that, but I had mostly stopped around 2007, 2008, uh, just because valuations were fairly high and I was in college, so I wasn't really focusing on the markets. But of course, the uh, the crisis of 08 brought my attention back to it. And then uh, the capitulation we had in 2009 uh, in the March and April timeframe when you know, the S&P 500 reached its low point, that drew me back into the market just because I didn't expect to see valuations that low. And uh, so I started investing again. And I've been kind of riding that ever since. That's really interesting. I always like to find out what was going on in people's lives back in 2008. And it affected people in different ways. And that's a really interesting story about the internship. Moving on to markets, you put out letters and you put out a lot of research. We can get into that later. Let's talk a little bit about where we are right now in the market cycle. And going back to 2008, obviously the buildup was in the mortgage sector. And um, you know we, we know that story quite well at this point. Now, when we look at leverage built up in the system, we see corporate debt. You can look at sovereign debt, arguably. How are you looking at the market cycle and where the excess is built up right now, if any, in, in markets? Sure. Yeah. There's three main areas of leverage in the U.S. system right now. Like as you point out, there's corporate debt uh, as a percentage of GDP is at a record high, uh, and then sovereign debt uh, in the U.S. and uh, in many other countries is um, also elevated. Um, and that's where, after the after the financial crisis, that's you know most of the balance sheet moved up to the sovereign level from the banking level because they got bailed out. We had the huge deficit spending during that period. So we had a a rapid increase in debt there. And then also, even though household debt overall as a percentage of GDP has declined uh, since the uh, crisis, certain types of household debt have increased. So for example, mainly mortgage debt has gone down because the housing situation has been uh, deleveraged, but uh, credit card debt, student loans, uh, auto loans, uh, personal loans, and all those types of uh, non-asset-backed loans, uh, they're actually at a combined higher percentage of GDP than they were uh, back, uh, you know, in 2007, 2006, 2008. Uh, So those are the three main areas where we have more excess this time. Uh, And if you map out uh, these past 10 years of the longest expansion in U.S. history, we've had three uh, mini cycles. So we've had you know, from 2009 to 2012, we had a growth cycle, we had accelerating growth, and then we had a big slowdown around the European uh, sovereign debt uh, issue. And then we had another growth cycle uh, that brought us to around 2015, 2016. We had the China slowdown, we had the oil price crash. And then we've had this third uh, mini cycle, another three years or so that has brought us to the slowdown in 2018, 2019. Uh, and none of those uh, went into a full recession. They just were periods of slowdown. Now we're at kind of an inflection point of, are we go- is this going to be the one that actually brings us down into a recession in the coming year or two, or are we going to have a full another uh, cycle of growth? Uh, but the one uh, 
common denominator across all those three cycles is that debt has accumulated across all of them. So even though uh, we've had these kind of three acceleration and deceleration periods, uh, we've not had any sort of sustained rise in unemployment, and we've had a continual increase in debt as a percentage of GDP uh, at the sovereign level, and especially the corporate level and the um, consumer credit level. Yeah, it's really interesting how your research and your recent note pointed that out and how you're looking at this, because I think a lot of people look at it just holistically and say, okay, you know, the expansion has been this long, but you have to almost drill down on that micro level to be able to take a look and and see things a little more clearly. I remember going back to 2016, some people claimed, okay, that was actually a recession, but it wasn't actually measured as one, um, which could explain um, some of the reasoning for the for this long cycle we, we've had. But as you mentioned, even so, with these uh, mini cycles that we've had, the debt has still built up in the system. Yeah, the there, there was no, yeah, exactly. There was no period of deleveraging in any of these two uh, or three down periods we've had. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, now, going to your, your note here, when you talk about you know, the, these mini cycles and, and where we are at this point, um, this economic inflection point, as you mentioned. How are you looking at the balance sheet? Let's dive into that a little bit as far as where the balance sheet is now, some of the repo market issues, which you've written a lot about and, and had some threads on Twitter. How are you looking at you know, we can take each one separately, but first off, just the balance sheet from a whole where it is. So before the uh, crisis, the balance sheet went up to around $800 billion. Obviously, it grew organically with GDP and um, you know, through open market operations. They took it all the way up to $4.5 trillion. Now, it was supposed to roll off. It never did. Well, slowly it did and then started ticking up again. And... Um, there's an argument to be made, okay, maybe maybe the real number right now should be like 1.2, 1.3 trillion, something like that, growing along with GDP, but it's much larger than that, right? So talk a little bit about how you're viewing that. Uh, sure, yeah. Prior to the crisis, uh, the balance sheet um, was about 6% of GDP. So that's, the, in my opinion, the best way to think of it is uh, not as raw, raw numbers, like how many trillions it is can be. Uh, overwhelming, but just thinking of it in terms of percent of GDP. So yeah, it, yeah, a much better way to look at it. Yeah, so it used to be about six percent, and actually, in the years leading up to the crisis, it it declined slightly from six point five percent of GDP to about six percent of GDP, even though it was growing in in absolute terms. Uh, and then, as you point out, uh, we had three rounds of of quantitative easing during and, and shortly after the crisis you know, from 2008 to 2014, that brought us up to a, a, a top of about 25% of GDP. And then for several years, they held the balance sheet flat, even though GDP kept increasing. So we slowly decreased the balance sheet as a percentage of GDP. And then they started, as you point out, uh, tightening it. They actually started slowly uh, declining the absolute size of the balance sheet. And they got us down to about 17% of GDP. So it was still very elevated compared to how it was pre-crisis. And part of that can be argued that it's due to, um, you know, there's higher reserve requirements. There's all sorts of reasons why it could be somewhat higher. Um, but then we had this repo crisis, and now we're we're rapidly going up 
uh, I think we're at something like 19% suddenly and after, you know, two months of that. And it looks like we're headed back into the 20s uh, percent wise. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it instead of just throwing out uh, dollar figures um, to actually look at the percent of GDP um, and to kind of view it through that lens. Now, when you're looking at the repo market, obviously, when you can, everyone can pull the chart and see the balance sheet is ticked up. What is it over something over four trillion now? Yeah, they crossed um, that uh, that magical threshold of four trillion. <laughs> we crossed that threshold, and obviously, it's on the short end of the curve. These thirty day bills, and there's a huge debate about the interest paid on excess reserves and you know, different issues going on with with banks and, and primary dealers and all these type of things. But talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the, the work you've done on the repo market. Uh, sure. So um, in the year leading up to it, I started uh, writing some articles raising concerns about the, the federal debt because, um, you know, there's always for decades, there have been people raising uh, issues about the debt. It's always growing and they always yeah. say it's, it's going to be a problem soon, but it never is. Uh, so one thing I just started pointing out uh, in the beginning of uh, 2019 and somewhat in, in uh, 2018 was that for one of the first times in recent history, we're having a large divergence where the deficit as a percentage of GDP is starting to increase substantially at the at the bullish phase of a market cycle. So normally deficits go up during uh, recessions or uh, wars like we had um, the last time that happened was Vietnam, uh, when we had the war in Vietnam. So for the first time in decades, we had a period where we were many years into a, a, a bullish cycle with no recession. And yet the deficit as a percent of, G- of GDP was rising, mm-hmm. um, because we had that, you know, we had entitlements were continuing to grow and then we had tax cuts that were not, um, offset by any sort of, uh, spending decreases. So we just had pure, uh, deficit based tax cuts and, uh, those combined forces like the the more near term cuts and then just the long term entitlement buildup uh, started to have its uh, due. So I started writing about that. Um, and then when the repo crisis struck, a lot of people were focused on the banking sector on the on the repo market itself, whereas I looked at it more as from a high level perspective of uh, funding the U.S. deficit. So mm-hmm. if you look over the period after quantitative uh, easing stopped for the third round in back in 2014, the dollar strengthened significantly. And if you look back historically, during periods of strong dollar, um, foreigners don't buy as much treasuries because that's the period where they have to mostly use their reserves to defend their own currency. When we're talking about central banks, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this strong dollar environment, uh, suddenly we had kind of a drop off uh, in foreigners buying uh, U.S. debt. Uh, it's been relatively steady um, over those five years, even though the debt has gone up dramatically. So most of that excess debt had to be absorbed by the the U.S. Uh, private sector, like pensions, um, all these domestic balance sheets. And they finally seem to have hit a limit around 2019, where they can only hold so much debt. Uh, and th- if you look at the primary dealer, like large U.S. banks, in particular, um, from 2014, after the third round of quantitative easing, they had pretty high cash levels as a percent of assets. So they got up to about 15% cash. But then over those five years, they've decreased their cash levels to about 8%, which is near regulatory limits 
uh, and they've increased their treasury allocations as a percent of assets all the way up to 21%, which is a record high. Mm-hmm. But they mostly had to draw down their cash levels in order to fund U.S. deficits, and there's just not a lot of liquidity left in the system. So we've had to have a new buyer of deficits uh, of the treasuries, and that's mm-hmm. so far been the Fed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about that. I'm seeing on your, your latest newsletter here, um, you posted a couple of tweet screenshots, which are interesting, talking about the Fed basically stepping in and financing these government deficits. Now, people have been talking about this for a while. I know Bill Gross from the old PIMCO days, he's been writing about this since I think it was 2010 or 2011 when I first started reading, really looking at some of his notes and and, and following some of this stuff. And this has been going on for a while now. As you mentioned, the question is, could this be coming to a head and, and at what point does the Fed actually need to step in w- when there are no buyers? Now, I think the other side of the coin is people say, okay, there are no other alternatives to treasuries, real alternatives. And so there's going to always be those incremental buyers. How, how would you respond to someone who brings up that point? Well, even if there's inc- incremental buyers, the question is, if there, is there enough buyers to cover uh, 5% of US GDP every year and growing? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the main question. If we have a recession, uh, when we already have a deficit of 5% of GDP, it could easily balloon back up to 7 8% of GDP, even potentially 10%, like we saw during the, the height of the global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I see here where you talk about there aren't many buyers left for a trillion plus in forward annual deficits. And I think this brings up a, a larger point too about rates and central banks around the world easing and, and trying to pin rates you know, at zero and in some cases negative. How are you looking at rates as far as maybe investors demanding higher rates on treasuries, on especially on the long end of the curve? Well, even if they do, I think the, the Fed's ultimately going to cap rates at some point. Um, uh, they've already talked about it openly, some of the, the, the governors of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did that previously also during World War II and then uh, shortly after World War II. So I think we're at the stage now where whether or not uh, investors want to uh, drive the rates up, I don't think the Fed's going to allow that to happen. Right. And they've talked about, uh, are you referencing kind of the yield curve uh, targeting, yield curve targeting kind of uh, things they've been talking about? Yes. Right. Okay. And so you, know, you go on to talk about to monetize or not to monetize. That is the question here in your note. And that's really one of the central themes on the podcast. So let's talk a little bit about the debt monetization question. So what I always talk about with people is when you look at the balance sheet, it was supposed to be like watching paint dry. It was supposed to roll off. And as we just talked about, it it hasn't happened. And now the opposite is happening. So I think the question is, you know, how are you looking at this as debt monetization and what implications are that? Like, do, we, do we see that show up in the currency in the, as a weaker dollar or do we see maybe uh, you know, higher rates? Maybe the Fed loses control of the, of the long end of the curve or how are you looking at that debt monetization piece? So, yeah, their main argument back uh, in 
2008, 2009, 10, all those years of quantitative easing, they argued that it was not debt monetization because it was temporary. That it would all be right. rolled off eventually. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, until as it was as it was holding steady and then as it was declining, they could still argue that that was the case. But now we're in a period where it's rising again. It never got anywhere near where it was before. So I think it's pretty clear that it was uh, debt monetization. And then the question is, what happens next? So earlier we talked about um, balance sheet as a percentage of GDP. So uh, the U.S. is is rapidly getting back around 20% or so. Um, Europe, the Eurozone, is around 40%, uh, give or take. Uh, their balance sheet is about the same, uh, about twice the size relative to GDP. And then J- Japan is over 100%, and so is the Swiss National Bank. Um, so they still have probably in their view, a lot of room to run because as far as, uh, developed economies, the U S balance sheet is still not one of the larger ones relative to GDP. Um, but my, my main thesis is that this ultimately, uh, will probably result in a weaker dollar. Uh, that's where I think the release valve is. And that's where historically the release valve has been. Yeah. It's interesting. When you look at the Dixie, I know a lot of people have been, calling for a weaker dollar and now there's this scenario where maybe there's this kind of melt up and then we finally get to that capitulation point but these cycles do sometimes take longer than people anticipate in some ways yeah that's that's definitely true now looking towards you know oh one thing i was going to mention was our, my first guest was uh, a guy named David Levine from a firm, his firm Odin River, and he brought up a good point about the debt monetization because a lot of the naysayers try to say, well, this is just an asset swap. Have you ever heard that one before? <laughs> I'm sure. Well, yeah. I mean, officially, it is an asset swap, essentially. Yeah. And I mean, he, he brought up a great point about, okay, if you're if I'm buying uh, the hat off your head and I give you a dollar for um, and now you have the dollar and I have your hat, then you know, we just swapped assets. <laughs> every t- trade and every transaction is technically an asset swap. That's what it is, right? Yes. So I think then we, you have to look <laughs> and, and use that second level thinking and look at actually what's happening because of that piece. So I, I find it, I don't know if it's people say that and they're doing it on purpose and it's intellectually dishonest, or if maybe they really think that you know, every asset swap has no knock-on effects. Yeah, it's hard to say. I'm sure different people interpret it differently, but um, I mean, especially uh, especially when you talk about, say, the Federal Reserve themselves, they're they're very cautioned in the wording they use uh, when describing this, and they don't because a lot of everything about money is confidence, right? Because ever since we separated uh, money from any sort of inherent value, like say gold or other assets, money is a confidence game. So um, mm-hmm. the professional investing community and then especially the central bankers have to use language that is kind of downplays some of the more um, blatant things that tend to happen uh, when we have certain debt problems or liquidity problems. They have to uh, make it sound more palatable. Yeah, and that's a really great point. One topic that does come up a lot on the show is People argue, okay, you can't really look at a sovereign in the same way that you look at a corporate balance sheet or a personal balance sheet, let's say. And then you go down the road of looking at MMT or some of these other theories saying, okay, the government can really print as much as it wants. And there are no really ill effects to that as long as it 
it's growing within kind of, as we talked about earlier, that the GDP is growing and being able to service that debt. How do you look at that piece? It's definitely true that sovereign debt is different uh, because as long as they, as long as we're talking about a developed country that controls their own currency, so they're not borrowing in foreign currency, they're they're printing their own currency. Uh, there's no real nominal default risk, at least historically. Right. Um, and in principle, they can just cover any obligation uh, with emergency measures if they need to. They always find a way. So there's no there's no real nominal default risk. It's more about how it translates into currency strength and inflation, if if any. Yeah, I think that's that's a really great point. I think that's the key point to make is obviously the U.S. will never just default on their debt. <laughs> but, you know, you have to look at it in real and then nominal terms. And I think that's the really key question. One interesting quick thing I'll bring up is this was going back to 2012, I believe, 2011 or 2012. There was a really interesting article in the Wall Street Journal where this investment manager bought what they thought was the safest investment, the most boring, just a U.S. Treasury. I can't remember if it was a bill, bond, or note, but it was right during the issue where they were trying to raise the debt ceiling. And they've raised it a bunch of times, but this particular time was one when people were really, really worried. And they they did get the ceiling raised, obviously, in the very last final moment. But there was actually a risk that that bill bond or note, I can't remember, would have been deferred or something like that, but still a liquidity issue. So I I thought that was actually kind of funny at the time. Yeah, there was actually a a slight downgrade uh, by one of the rating agencies for US debt over that. Yeah, that was super interesting. A lot of people may not know about that or may have forgotten about that, but worth uh, Googling and um, and going back to 2011, 12, that range and, and reading some of those articles. It was, it was a super interesting time and brings up good points about, you know, what, what does a default mean? And there are a lot of uh, esoteric kind of points about it when you actually kind of dig a little deeper in the weeds. Obviously, we're not defaulting on our debt just upright, as you mentioned, but I think there's a lot of other implications to look at. Now, moving on to, you talk a little bit about precious metals in your note, and I know you've done some research there. You put out your asset allocation changes, and you always include the precious metals. Let's talk a little bit about you know, we can talk really more about gold in general. Um, talk about your views uh, regarding gold and, and, and other precious metals. Sure. So um, I've, I've been investing in uh, gold and silver since, actually since I was a kid. Um, and then somewhat luckily, I sold my collection uh, in 2011. Uh, and these were gold uh, co- gold and silver coins or yes. bars? Yes. Physical Interesting. Yep. And then I actually, uh, somewhat luck, but I sold my uh, collection in 2011 because uh, that huge run-up we had. Um, and at the time, I didn't have very sophisticated methods for valuing it, but um, just purely on sentiment, that how excited people were about gold, how they were saying it's going to 5,000, and just the sheer run-up we already had. Uh, I no longer, uh, I had been holding it for years, and I no longer uh you know, felt optimistic about it. So I sold it and then I put that into stocks, which ended up being a good decision. But um, I didn't know that it was going to peak right around then uh, that the actual timing was luck. Um, and then it was around uh, 2016, 2017, I started uh, slowly getting back in very little. And then it was uh, late 2018 that I started going back in um, 
pretty heavily, uh, both into gold, silver, and into uh, gold and silver stocks, uh, including the miners and the royalty and streaming companies. So yeah, the main benefit of gold uh, and to some extent silver is that it just holds value against uh, currency weakness, money printing. Uh, It's generally counter cyclical uh, to some extent. So it has a lot of advantages uh, during certain types of uh, monetary environments or uh, certain uh, parts of the business cycle. Right. And do you have any views as far as when you look at silver versus gold? Some people look at the charts and say, okay, right now silver is perhaps undervalued compared to gold. And then when you look at platinum, it's lagged gold for a while. So mean reversion type trades, or do you have any, any views there? Yeah, to some extent. I like I like silver for those reasons. Um, mm-hmm. I like both, but I do. Um, I think silver's got more opportunity in it over the next five years or so. Uh, but both silver and platinum, of course, have industrial uses, whereas gold is primarily used for uh, jewelry and uh, as a monetary metal. Uh, so they have a more cyclical uh, issues with them. Um, and that can be good or bad. So, for example, silver has a lot of use cases in technology. So uh, mm-hmm. any sort of electronics, um, electric vehicles, solar panels, uh, whereas platinum has heavy usage as catalytic converters, which... Um, are it's currently been placed by replaced by palladium in many cases, and then also, of course, there's a whole threat from electric vehicles uh, making it uh, less needed in general. Um, so it's been on a a bear market uh, for a while now, but uh, I'm optimistic long term about them compared to gold. But primarily, I stick to gold and silver at the current time. Yeah, it's interesting how you point out, too, in one of your notes here about precious metals investing, talking about how the miners have, they're more levered against gold and talking about some of the differences between, you know, physical gold and and ETFs and things like that as well. Yeah, there's definitely different layers you can invest in. So there's there's physical holding for, you know, the the more rough scenarios where you actually want to have it physically. Um, And then there's Streamers and, and miners. Uh, streamers, in some ways, have the best risk reward profile because they uh, they are financiers of gold mines. So they put up upfront capital to help miners develop their mines. And in exchange, they get a percentage or they get the right to buy uh, at a very low price. And so they have a, a very low break-even price. Uh, so it's very hard for them to, to outright lose money. Um but they have less operational leverage should the price of gold or silver soar. Uh, and then large miners um, with low production costs are kind of the next phase where they have, you know, they have higher break-even points than the streamers, and but they have, uh, they can still withstand uh, pretty low prices for a long time. And then of course you have the more uh, either debt heavy miners or the ones with higher production costs that um, they have a very rough time over the long term, but they can have, uh, pretty explosive upside uh, should you get a a rise in gold and silver because they go from borderline insolvent to profitable. Yeah. And you have a great chart on your blog there, uh, a Fred chart that shows the gold price versus tracking against M2 money stock um, slash population there, it says. And the chart is interesting because it seems to track the price there with some caveats of obviously getting uh, moving away from the 
well, I don't want to say fundamentals, but uh, you know, moving away from that mean there. Talk a little bit about that chart, why you put it in there, and your views on it. Sure, yeah. There are two main charts that I use, and that's one of them when it comes to valuing gold. So yeah. uh, that one, as you pointed out, uh, compares the price of gold to the per capita broad money supply um, with the idea that it's really not gold that changes in price too much. It's mainly that other currencies devalue against gold because uh, over time, the rate at which gold is mined like the the amount of uh, annual percent increase in total known gold supply is roughly uh, the same as population growth. So uh, there's about uh, one ounce of gold uh, for every human on earth above ground that is known. And that doesn't change much from year to year or even decade to decade. You know, it can fluctuate a tiny bit and the, the exact number is not known, but it's not really a number that changes too much. But the number of dollars per person or the number of yen per person, the number of euros per person uh, keeps increasing over time uh, by 5%, 6%, uh, sometimes more rapidly uh, every year. So over time, the precious metals, in particular gold, uh, increase uh, relative to those uh, uh, units of currency. And over the very long term, it tracks that rate pretty well. But then you have these periods, as you point out, where it deviates significantly. So in 1980 and in 2011, we had these big spikes uh, where gold uh, rapidly went above the trend line of money supply growth. And then you had uh, the whole period uh, and during the 80s, like after that, and the 90s, where uh, gold was uh, undervalued relative to that trend line. And that can be explained by the second chart that I follow, which is just comparing the annual year-over-year change in gold price compared to real interest rates. Uh, And there's a couple different ways to measure that, but I use the 10-year treasury uh, minus uh, the inflation rate. So whenever there's a positive real interest rate, there's a good incentive to hold uh, cash and bonds instead of gold because you get paid real returns uh, from a bank or from a treasury for holding it. Uh, But when, like now, when there's little or no difference or in some sometimes negative uh, where inflation is higher than your nominal yields or nominal interest rates, uh, it's more attractive to store your money in precious metals because the whole argument is that they don't pay a yield, but mm-hmm. they at least keep track over the long term with inflation and purchasing power. So whenever bonds and cash in a bank get to that point where they're not paying a real year yield either, it becomes more desirable to uh, hold gold and silver. So uh, by putting those charts together, you have kind of a long-term valuation approach, and then you have the more uh, short-term indication of why it might deviate to the upside or downside based on interest rates. Yeah, those are really interesting valuation techniques. I know we've seen a little bit on gold recently. When you look around the world, obviously, all the negative yielding sovereign debt some people think maybe we should have seen more of a bid there, or maybe we have some more uh, upside to go. Um, but that's those are interesting valuation techniques. I think also when you look at the the, the market cap, what is it, eight nine trillion versus uh, fiat currencies in general, um, you know, have an interesting asymmetric trade there. Yeah, even at, at the margin. Not saying that we're going back to the gold standard or anything, but um, I think that's also an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, it's a pretty small market. So if investors 
uh, pour even a small amount of extra money into it, uh, you can get a pretty big rise. And that's actually one of the main arguments for silver, that it's it's a completely tiny market, even compared to gold, which is not a very large market. Uh, so if there's any interest at all globally in, in allocating into silver, that's why it has that more explosive upside potential than gold. Yeah, I think a lot of people mention that higher beta kind of gold trade. And I remember reading about the Hunt brothers and um, kind of the saga back then of of what happened there in history. Um, you mentioned your collection that you sold. Um, I remember I was hearing an interesting quote by Jim Grant talking about he was actually waiting in line to buy uh, gold coins. This was at the peak um, of, of where the market was for gold. And it was a lesson that he learned is never wait in line, uh, a really long line to buy an investment. Exactly. <laughs> so yes. uh, I thought that was a, uh, that was an interesting antidote. Obviously he's, he's a gold bull and, and has a, a lot of really great uh, information and knowledge through the newsletter and podcast, but going to your, your blog here, I'm reading on seeking alpha and I know you, you published there and on your own website, but uh, this one called The Most Crowded Trade, which is a really interesting article, very w- well written and well researched. Um, so let's start to unpack this a little bit. Tell us a little bit about just generally about the article. And um, I know it, it had a huge amount of, uh, of traction online and in social media. Sure. That was my uh, summarization of the research I did about the repo issue and my thesis mm-hmm. on um, uh, a weaker dollar coming eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it summarized what we talked about earlier, where um, we had this, you know, this period of quantitative tightening. We had uh, relatively few foreign buyers. Uh, we have this historical correlation where when it, whenever the dollar is stronger, we generally get fewer foreign buyers uh, of treasuries. And how uh, now that the Federal Federal Reserve is buying, this represents a massive pivot, like a, a multi-year pivot in U.S. monetary policy. So we've had this five-year period of a very strong dollar because we've had uh, large deficits, uh, which allowed us to uh, grow at a pretty good rate uh, economically in the U.S. Um, but, uh, and that also allowed us to have pretty tight monetary uh, policy compared to Europe, compared to Japan, compared to you know pretty much every other developed market. And that's a recipe for a very strong currency while it lasts. Uh, but uh, with the liquidity shortage that started to happen around the world, and then uh, came home, as far as we can tell, with the repo spike, with uh, a liquidity shortage in the U.S. banking system. Um, now we're pivoting towards a more accommodative uh, monetary policy. So now we're printing uh, the money needed to fund all that liquidity, to fund U.S. deficits. Uh, so my main thesis is that as we go into 2020, 2021, uh, we're likely to see a, a flat or most likely a lower dollar. Um, and since that article came out, we've had a, a slightly down, but mostly choppy sideways um, uh, dollar. Yeah, and we touched on some of this stuff before, but towards the end of the article there, you talk about a couple different scenarios. So the first one being no recession in the U.S. and the second one being a recession. And that kind of ties into your thesis of, is this really uh, the time where we finally uh, do dip into recession, unlike the past um, two or three times where where we didn't? Sure, yeah. There are some uh, dollar bulls that have um, argued that we're, we're – uh, 
have a risk of a, a potential super spike in the dollar that the dollar could get so incredibly strong uh, that it could hit new new highs, all time highs. Um, and the main issue with that, uh, we've already had this period of dollar strength, so I think that that thesis has already largely played out and kind of ended uh, with this repo spike and the balance sheet increases. But basically, the main limiter to that happening is that uh, the U.S. itself is highly vulnerable to a stronger dollar because we all this time you've had a stronger dollar and the S&P 500 for example gets uh, over 40% of its revenue from outside the United States mostly in foreign currencies and uh, so a stronger dollar translates into uh, weaker foreign earnings when they're translated back into dollars uh, and that uh, keeps makes it hard to prop up the U.S. stock market that makes it hard to keep the expansion going it's also, of course, bad for our trade deficit, our current account balance. Um, so it's with this large pivot in monetary policy where we suddenly have uh, two months of, uh, you know, the Fed, two or three months of the Fed raising the balance sheet has undone all of 2019's quantitative tightening. Uh, we're definitely, I think, starting to at least address the liquidity shortage in the dollar. And then if the U.S. encounters a recession, uh that money printing is likely to go up dramatically, which should further alleviate any sort of dollar liquidity shortage that's happening uh, foreign and domestically. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. I've talked to a handful of people about when you look at rates, whether we've seen the lows on, let's say, the 10-year you know, we, we hit that all-time low in 2012, and then we retested it again in 2016. And there's a question of, I know some people are calling for, okay, this is probably it, you know, the point where we've seen the lows and, and rates head up. And then when you look at the other side of the coin, okay, what if there is a recession and then we see this flood of, of assets go into U.S. treasuries for that safe haven trade? And then another piece to that is when you look around the world, on a relative basis, U.S. treasuries look actually pretty interesting. How are you looking at at that piece as far as rates and, and treasuries? Sure. There's a couple of pieces to touch on there. Um, U.S. yields are higher than most of the rest of the developed world. Um, a challenge, though, is that um, uh, central banks haven't really been buying. So that leaves private foreign investors to do most of the buying. Mm -hmm. And then among them, the only ones that can enjoy that yield advantage are ones that are willing to buy it unhedged. Because the ones that want to hedge the currency risk, uh, they they lose out on that extra yield. They end up having the same, uh, you know, after the hedging costs, they have the same, like, you know, zero, roughly zero rate that they would get in their own currency. Interesting, because of the currency swap there. Yeah, yeah. All the hedging costs is just take out all that uh, slight extra yield they get. Uh, so, uh, and in, especially in, in conservative funds, uh, big money that has to be very prudent with it. Um, for example, in 2017, the dollar had about a 10% uh, down. It went about 10% down that year. So that would wipe out several years of interest payments if you if you were a foreigner holding that unhedged relative to your own currency. Uh, so that uh, presents somewhat of a ceiling on how much demand there can be just on the on the yield differential alone. Um, but yeah, yeah the, the flight to safety trade is always um, a challenge. But the issue there is that if there's a flight to safety trade, um, that can, after a quarter or two, that can just further hurt the U.S. profitability and drive it into recession. So there's kind of this self-correcting mechanism where 
the, the stronger the dollar gets or the more demand there is for treasuries, uh, it can it can actually hurt the U.S. at this point because, um, and even our own president for, is you know aware of this. He's been calling for a weaker dollar because if the yeah. dollar gets too strong, it, it hurts us just as much as it hurts you know emerging markets just for different reasons. Yeah, it's a great example of a second level thinking too. When you look at um, sovereign debt, and then looking at that second level piece of of currencies uh, pairs, right? Because I think um, one example is when you look at Japan, obviously they own a large percentage of JGBs and they also own equities and and other assets. Um, But there's this question of, okay, if they buy up, let's say most or even all of the JGBs outstanding, then what will that do to the currency? Um, and, and, but you always have to look at it versus other currencies. Obviously you can't look at it in a vacuum. So, um, that's, that's a really interesting point to make. Uh, do you have any things to say there on Japan or? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, one of the key variables that I think a lot of people, uh, don't focus on is, uh, trade balances and current account balances. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Japan, for example, has long had a positive uh, trade balance or, you know, sometimes it was flat, often it was positive, And then their current account was, has generally always been positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're internally funded as well. Yeah, right? mostly. Yeah. And then uh, I believe it was around 2012. Uh, they, they started to have um, uh, negative, um, uh, they, they started to have a negative trade balance and then their current account balance went to roughly flat, roughly zero, which for them was a, a rare occurrence. Uh, and around the same time, they, of course, had massive uh, debt. They had massive deficits. And that's when they started ramping up this really impressive balance sheet expansion that Japan has had, uh, that they're now over 100% of GDP. But back then, they were way less. So they started ramping up from 2012 to about 2015. They had this huge surge of quantitative easing. And the yen decreased. It used to be, I think in 2012, it was like 78 yen to the dollar. And then by 2015, it was 120 yen to the dollar. So there's, there was like a massive devaluation of the yen to the dollar. Mm-hmm. And that actually, and also they devalued against the euro. They devalued against a couple other major currencies, not as much as they devalued against the dollar because uh, the dollar strengthened as well, but they, they devalued compared to many other developed currencies. And their trade balance suddenly improved. Their current account balance went positive again. And they, they got back up to equilibrium. And even though from that point they kept increasing their balance sheet as a percentage of GDP, the yen stopped weakening. Uh, and in fact, since then, the yen has very slowly strengthened against the dollar. Uh, right. You know, it's been a choppy pattern, of course, and they've never gotten back anywhere near 78 to 1. They're still at well over 100. But they have uh, strengthened from their low point, even though they ramped up their their balance sheet. So there's really a limiting factor at some point when you have these different countries uh, you can only weaken your currency so much until you have this this huge, uh, you know, current account uh, and and you know positive or at least flat trade balance. It's hard to weaken yourself into a major trade surplus, at least for a sustained time. Yeah, I remember going back to 2012. A couple of hedge funders calling for you know 150 or even I, I think it was 200 <laughs> at the time, and then and then it didn't. It never really panned out. Know, when you're looking at yen to dollar, but that's super interesting. Now, moving on lastly to this really interesting note here that you wrote about the four bubbles 
growing in the United States, four economic bubbles growing in the United States. And I have to touch on this last because it wouldn't be right to not do it, seeing as the title of a show is the Jelly Donut Podcast here. <laughs> I think when you talk about jelly donuts, you talk about bubbles and you talk about excess, we try to have a balanced view, but uh, this is a really interesting topic to talk about, okay, what bubbles are forming and what excesses are forming. So you, you have the article here, you, you lay out uh, several of them. So let's let's just touch on them briefly. So the first one is the student loan debt. And, um, and you show the chart here. That's just this hockey stick uh, pattern. Talk a little bit about the article and, and let's take the first one, the student loan debt. Uh, sure. That's basically, it's part of the broader problem of just a higher consumer credit in general as a percentage of GDP with student loans being one of the worst offenders in that category. Mm-hmm. Um, so student loans, uh, they're one of the few types of debt that can't be discharged in bankruptcy. Um, and right. so years ago, uh, public universities were far cheaper uh, and many of them were free, but over time, uh, fewer resources have been allocated to them. So more and more, the costs have gone up and more and more of the burden is on the student to pay for it. So we've had this sharp rise uh, in student debt. And that's, you know, it's kind of common knowledge at this point that that's playing a, a role in uh, uh, millennials buying fewer homes, delaying purchases. The average age of, of the home buyer is uh, increasing substantially. Yeah. Uh, so it's just it's basically putting an anchor uh, on consumer spending that wasn't there for prior generations, and it's something we have to factor in when we talk about what's growth going to be like, how strong is the consumer, um, because there's this there's this debt burden at a much younger age that didn't exist uh, for the most part. Yeah, and I see here where you show it's 1.3 trillion of both public and private sources for student loans. I I heard I believe it was the government actually owns a trillion of that. So it's super interesting to look at the knock-on effects of the economy and and purchasing power for homes and things as you mentioned. The second one is uh healthcare costs. So there's this huge debate I think when you look at the word inflation and it can mean a lot of different things. You, we talked about asset price inflation uh, due to zero interest rate policy and things like that. And when you look at inflation, there's different ways you can measure it. Obviously there's the the core CPI and then there's the um, PC deflator and all these different metrics. And then when you look at the way the fed measures it without food and energy, some people say, well, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so when you look at inflation, I've seen some interesting charts showing inflation obviously being in, in check and under control. And then you have these these spikes, like you know, healthcare is one of them. So talk a little bit about uh, your reasoning for putting the healthcare in here. Sure. So the U.S. Uh, has by far the highest healthcare cost in the world on a per capita basis or as a percentage of GDP. So uh, higher than, you know, Switzerland, Germany, Sweden, France, Canada, pretty much every other developed country. Um, and that, of course, is another large uh, uh, impact on the consumer and on businesses because it's, you know, between, well, actually government too. So government businesses and consumers are all paying into that in different ways. Uh, and that's a drag on uh, government spending. It's a drag on consumer spending. Um, and your point about inflation 
Uh, one of the ways to think about inflation is to separate it into goods inflation and service inflation. So the cost of goods uh, generally have, have either stayed low or in many cases gone down. So for example, you can get a much better TV now for a low price than you could five, 10 years ago. Um, goods uh, due to offshoring, due to automation, due to better technology uh, have really come down in price in most cases. Services, on the other hand, have generally gone up. So uh, education, healthcare, things that you can't automate away, things that you can't outsource to a cheaper country, um, things that you basically have to pay other people in your country to do uh, have, have gone up pretty dramatically. And in part because you're then paying for, the, like they have to cover their own healthcare, so you have to pay them enough to be able to cover their healthcare. That, that gets charged into their prices. Um, all the insurance, all the liability insurance they do. So uh, healthcare and education and many other services have gone up uh, every year faster than the, the core inflation rate because they're services. I like that way of separating them out. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Moving on to the next one, you have the unfunded state pension liabilities. And this is a topic that probably doesn't get enough attention. There's some attention that has been drawn to it. Uh, Warren Buffett wrote about it in his annual letter. I think it was two or three years ago. And obviously many people have talked about it, but there hasn't been too much traction on it. I know some of the large plans have been lowering their target returns. Some of them were at seven or higher, which is way too high. Now some of them have been dialing it down to, you know, six and a half, six, when maybe they should be going to uh, four or five. I know Howard Marks had a good comment about when you look at the 10 year treasury, you know, all assets price from that. So when you look at future returns, you know, you can argue about growth rates and things like that, but <laughs> forward looking expectations should probably be a lot lower. And that brings up a question is, well, what happens in that? in that case. <laughs> so what, what, what does happen? Sure. Yeah. Over the past couple of decades, we developed like a multi-trillion dollar uh, deficit between the expected liabilities and the assets of, of pensions, which are mostly state and local pensions. Um, mm -hmm. And they're actually in some ways, a similar situation to Europe. So back during the European sovereign debt crisis, the issue is that, that many of the weaker uh, countries had these large debts and then um, they don't print their own currency because they, they have the euro. So uh, they actually were possible risk of nominal default. Uh, so you had that, you know, kind of death spiral where rates started to rise and that further increases their chance of default. So with states, you have kind of a similar thing where as the pension situation gets, gets harder and harder to uh, pay down, they have these big, big deficits. Uh, they have the, they could start cutting um, uh, payouts to retirees, but that's, of course, unpopular. And then some of them have lost court cases where the court won't let them do that. I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's one direction that's, that's so far proven uh, challenging. And then the other direction uh, is they can increase tax some people. And, of course, that's wildly unpopular. Uh, and it also results in them potentially moving from the state. So it's like if, if you're in one of the states that has the largest pension shortfalls and they want to raise your taxes, you can easily move to another state. Uh, you know, of course you have job issues or things like that, but especially the, the wealthier people that would pay more of those taxes have a lot of mobility to just move to another state. Um, so it leaves them with very few options. 
and they, they don't, unlike the federal government, they don't print their own currency. So they're actually, you know, they're at risk of default if they don't, don't manage their revenue and their liabilities. Um, so most likely the way out of it, uh, I think, is that in the 2020s, we're probably going to see federal bailouts of, of these large state and local pensions because yeah. uh, there's almost no other mathematical way that this could resolve it's you know, it's going to be a definitely it's going to be a very challenging time, and you're going to have a lot of uh, generational divide because that's mostly, you know, that whole millennial versus boomer divide <laughs> kind of been happening right. right now, and this is sort of the the epicenter of it is um, the, the the tax burdens to pay for uh, retirement benefits that have proven to be very expensive relative to the return generated during their their lifetime. Yeah, it's really interesting when you look at, I know it was, I believe it was New Jersey. They were kind of at the forefront of pushing forward a landmark Supreme Court case to help legalize gambling, sports gambling. And then when you look at Illinois, you know, bringing uh, things like cannabis and (laughs) slot machines and gambling and uh, kind of legalizing everything from a, let's say a libertarian standpoint just in order to tax it yeah money speaks that's one of the quickest ways for things to get legalized is when the state realizes they can make money from it yeah that's one thesis out there is uh you know as long as it's not harming someone else and you're doing it with your own fruition then in the future it's going to be legalized probably (laughs) because uh, they need to tax it so i guess uh, strike one for the libertarians if that if that comes true but um you know, moving on here to the last one, which we touched on a lot, but it's a great way to close, and that's the federal debt. There's a lot of ways to look at this, but at the very last point in the article you make is the U.S. is growing the debt faster than the GDP in tax revenue. And, you know, that's causing a, a rapid rise in the debt to GDP. And um, I think that's the, the interesting thing to focus on. Um, when I had David Einhorn on, actually, he talked about, okay, if inflation does get out of control, um, r- let's say the Fed wants to you know, raise rates like Volcker did. Well, back then, um, rates were 35 40% of GDP, I believe, and now they're much, much higher. So you have this interesting dynamic. If the inflation does get out of control, maybe we, we couldn't even afford to raise rates without having you know a huge issue with the debt spiraling out of control. So Lastly, let's just you know touch on on your thoughts here. Yeah, they mostly won't be able to, but then uh, more interestingly, uh, they probably wouldn't want to. So, for example, we actually already have <laughs> the Fed uh, like uh, talking about potentially capping treasury rates uh, during mm-hmm. the next period of weakness. And, wow! Yeah, and they actually uh, did that during the 1940s and, and uh, into the early 1950s. So, if you look at the federal debt to GDP chart over time. Uh, you know, we're currently at the second highest we ever were. Uh, the highest it ever reached was during World War II. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, back during then, wartime. Yeah, yeah. And shortly after, actually, during and after. And that, uh, even though back then total debt, like if you included private debt, total debt was lower back then as a percentage of GDP, but the federal debt was higher. And what the Fed ended up doing is that for like a, uh, I don't know if it was seven or eight year period, starting in the the early 40s and going to the around 1950 or so they capped interest rates uh so they they set an artificially low and fairly steep yield curve so they said okay long-term rates are 2.5 percent 
and short-term rates are less than half a percent. Uh, and mm-hmm. they just said, that's, you know, it's, we're funding the war effort. That's what it is. And so, of course, in order to peg the rate to that low, the Fed had to be willing to to buy, uh, you know, if they, if they had to buy the, the debt to keep it uh, at that level. Right. Uh, and so that was a, another period of, of rapid balance sheet expansion of debt monetization. Uh, but it actually wasn't too big. Mainly what happened was, so they capped interest rates that low and then, there were periods during the the 1940s where uh, inflation uh, got up to 19%. Uh, so inflation was 19%. The treasury yield was 2.5%. So you're, you know, you had a, even though, like we talked about, every single dollar was paid back nominally. None of the bonds yeah, defaulted. That was back in what, 81, 82, something like that. Yes. Or 1980. This, well, that was another period of inflation where, where inflation got up to about 15%. But, a lesser known one was during and uh, 1942 and 1947. I oh, okay. We had Back these, then, even yeah, before that. Yeah, we had these huge inflation spikes during and after the war. They were actually, uh, they got the higher levels than 1980, uh, but it was briefer. And, wow, okay. And rather than the Fed trying to fight it, they capped interest rates super low and just let the debt inflate away. So uh, people that bought treasury bonds uh, and held them, uh, they got every dollar paid back, but over the course of a decade, they lost about 25 or 30% of their purchasing power, uh, which was an a-, a terrible annualized rate because, you know, most things over the course of a decade, you're expected to increase your purchasing power, but you actually left the decade with uh, three quarters of the purchasing power you went in with. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's... That's super interesting when you look back at financial history and, and be able to try to draw some parallels and to think about, you know, what might happen next. And you mentioned when the Fed is is easing and going in there and just buying those treasuries is, you know, they're they're putting that floor under there and, and, and lowering those yields by, by doing so much buying and being kind of that buyer of last resort. Yes. Yeah, they have the power to cap rates. And uh, it, there's various release valves. I mean, there's no free lunch. So especially today, that can result in a weaker currency. Um, that can result in all sorts of issues, but they do have the power to cap rates if they want to. Yeah, and I know there, there's been some talk about negative, uh, bringing the U.S. rates negative, and will they do that? And you know, maybe hopefully they won't have to, but uh, that's will be very interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, certainly. Well, Lynn, it was great to have you. I'm going to link your blog and your Twitter handle here in the show notes. But tell us a little bit about your work. I know you have a, a premium uh, subscription and you also offer a free newsletter. Tell us a little bit about how people can uh, read some of your content. Sure. I, I publish on lynnalden.com. Uh, that's my my core uh, area. So I have a free newsletter. comes out every six weeks. It has uh, over 10,000 members. And then uh, last month, I launched a premium research service uh, that's also rapidly growing. Uh, it's a pretty low cost because it's aimed for, you know, the general investor rather than uh, just people that are, are active traders. So that's actually meant for kind of long-term, low-turnover investors that just want some guidance and some stock ideas. Uh, and that's so far been been pretty popular. And then I publish uh, some of my content as well on Seeking Alpha. Uh, and I'm slightly active on Twitter. You know, and I don't post... Uh, I don't post every day, but I post uh, uh, just some thoughts and charts out there to get people thinking. 
Well, great, Lynn. It was really awesome to have you on and uh, really appreciate it and look forward to reading more of your work in 2020. Yep. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at JellyDonutPod. Or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast at ProtonMail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.